Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Thank you very much, Eva, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to you today about the, the great work that you do at the Environmental Leadership and Training Initiative at Yale, at the, the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Um, and uh, yeah, some of the projects you're involved in, particularly I, I'm interested in, in getting a sense of the way you approach conservation projects, restoration, and, and really also the role of uh, local communities and people uh, living in the community, uh, which seems to be sometimes a neglected area. Um, but can you maybe tell me a little bit about your background first and what you do? Uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, so my background is actually originally in political ecology and um, biology. And then I uh, came to the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and got a master's and a doctoral degree in um, cultural anthropology, also focusing on political ecology. And I know you've also been an advisor and researcher for conservation and restoration efforts at several places prior to the important work you're doing at LT. Um, now, the work at LT, your work bridges across the political and environmental and beyond. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. It is um, really looking at the relationships between the political, economic and social factors with respect to environmental issues um, and really focusing in on the role of power in um, and how power impacts the way we think about environmental problems and the solutions to those problems. Very interesting. Because, uh, how, how would you say generally how, how well integrated or included is power? It's, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting point at the moment because quite a few environmental movements and, and some are addressing the question of power and others are saying, well, it's, it's, you know, we don't want to go there. We don't want to get involved in that because I guess to some degree power today also means thinking about capitalism <laughs> to some degree. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I would argue that we can't think about solutions to the problems we're facing today with the environment without thinking about power. And it is the hardest um, component, but power causes, you know, highly variable access to and control over natural resources. And if we don't address it, we're not going to understand the root causes of environmental problems. We will um, maybe identify problems inaccurately and then find solutions that actually don't address the problems. They could cause unintended consequences. Um, they could just be a band-aid as things continue to spiral out of control, which is what I think has happened today. So I think it's, I, I do understand how difficult it is um, to think about power dynamics, to think about sort of the people component, um, but without it, we're not gonna get anywhere with the problems that we're facing. Right, I'm sure surely come back to talk about this in a, in a, in a few minutes. Could you tell me a little bit about what um, I guess called LT, uh, however you pronounce that? Yeah, uh, what 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 you're about there? Um, I, I noted that it it's um, in, in in your restoration focus and conservation is in human dominated landscapes, and I'm just wondering um, why why is that important? So, so yeah, if you could include something about that. So uh, LT is a program of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and we focus exclusively on capacity development 
in human dominated or what people can also refer to as mosaic landscapes, um, multiple use landscapes. So these are areas that were once forested um, or largely forested and are now a composite of different land use practices. So you'll have remnant trees in the landscape, forest fragments, but you're also going to have different scales of agricultural production. You'll have cattle ranching, mining, you know, it really depends. So these are actually the landscapes where most of the world's biodiversity is located today. So tropical forests, you know, we, we used to have intact large, vast quantities of tropical forests. Um, and now, interestingly, only about 9.8% of the entire tropical forest biome lies within strictly protected areas. And so what does that mean? It means that so much of the, of, of the forest cover of biodiversity is outside of protected areas. And, and so we have to be really creative in the solutions and the, the way we approach conservation and restoration. And so that's something that is very unique to LT. Um, we look at building capacity of people who are influencing or managing or depending upon um, these human-dominated mosaic tropical forest landscapes. Uh, we build their capacity to try to conserve and restore these landscapes and doing so in ways that both um, support local livelihoods and also protect biodiversity. And so if we don't focus on these areas, um, we're going to lose a lot of what we have. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to negate the importance of protected areas and expanding protected areas. I think that's crucial. And, and there are many people who are focused on that. But what LT does is look beyond the protected area and, and really look at that matrix of very complicated um, landscapes where you have multiple issues going on, um, multiple needs, different different stakeholders, um, people who are, are trying to extract from those landscapes to subsist, to conserve. And those are the areas that we focus on. Right, right. So, do, so does that include the Amazon? Yes, absolutely. It's very interesting. People think about the Amazon and they think, you know, vast territory of intact tropical forests. Well, if you think about it, the Amazon has been inhabited by, by humans for hundreds of years, if not more. And so people have been impacting that landscape for, for a very long time. Uh, but even more so, there are cities in the Amazon. You know, there is there are very fragmented areas. You have, um, you know, with, with cattle ranching and agricultural expansion, uh, road development, the Amazon is, is becoming more and more fragmented. Uh, so there are many parts of the Amazon, yes, that are still intact. And people are trying to keep those intact um, and, and using strategies such as, as Red Plus, which is reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, which is really trying to incentivize governments um, at different scales to keep forests intact. But in other parts of the Amazon, you have places that are highly fragmented, um, that are these mosaic landscapes. And so the efforts to try to increase tree and forest cover in those landscapes is crucial and it's vital to trying to protect biodiversity and maintain ecosystem services. Right. Now, that, that's very interesting, um, because presumably in these mosaic, uh, and as you were saying, uh, landscapes, there are multiple stakeholders uh, with uh, different, uh, different needs, different rights, I suppose, and different differential powers. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and so that's 
what I will go back to, you know, if you're, if you're looking at even in intact, you know, tropical forest landscapes where you have big, large tracts of tropical forest, people are contesting, you know, who owns and has the right to use and manage those resources. So the power aspects are, are critical. Um, you'll have national governments that say they control, um, uh, uh, forests and, and need to manage them, and then they can uh, do what, what they want. They can give out forest concessions um, for mining and such. But then you have indigenous and other traditional communities that have lived within these natural resources and forests for, for millennia and are managing them and believe that they have access and rights to these areas. So the power dynamics are very complicated. When you go into these mosaic, you know, human-dominated landscapes where you do have multiple land use practices um, side by side or intertwined, it gets even more complicated. You have, for example, a, a landscape where LT works in Panama. Uh, this is a traditional cattle ranching landscape now uh, where you have different scales of, of cattle ranching going on, different forms of agricultural production. Uh, and so you have to address you know, the very complicated cultural aspects of cattle ranching um, and all the pressures to deforest that area. You know, banks used to incentivize deforestation. So we have to think very carefully when we look at landscapes that are, you know, currently in a state that we think might not, you know, we, we would want them to be a little more forested or have more forest cover. Um, you look at cattle ranchers and you can think, oh, these are the culprits, but they're working within a very complicated political, economic structure and, and system and making decisions um, that are very logical. And so I think that's the key to it. We have to understand what drives people's land use practices. Um, are we incentivizing uh, uh, deforestation? How do we stop that? And then we need to think about ways of trying to increase tree and forest cover, trying to protect biodiversity, but doing so in ways that support livelihoods. Um, you can't, in, in these very complicated landscapes, you can't just dictate you know, what should be and, and try to put forests back there. You really have to understand the history, the culture, um, the ecology, you know, what's driving land use practices, the power dynamics, who has control and how and why. And then we can start to think about solutions. Right. A lot of ground you've covered there, which I'd love to talk about in more detail. Um, I mean, firstly, maybe you could set the scene a little bit um, in terms of, you know, how how well developed is our you know, knowledge of uh, how to go about, you know, conservation and restoration and how has that developed? I mean, maybe in the last 20 or 30 years, just at a very high level. I mean, what, one of the um, uh, uh, messages I get from you is, is about the community level and the indigenous peoples and this kind of bottom up kind of thing, um, which may may have been neglected, I guess, in, in, a, in what would probably have been a more uh, scientific type uh, approach to these questions. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. I think there's been just, you know, outstanding and exceptional scientific research, technical research about conservation and restoration uh, of, of tropical forests and tropical forest landscapes. I think what is often not studied or, or recognized or understood are the social aspects and the, the political, cultural, um, economic aspects driving land use practices. Uh, so, what I think needs to happen, it, it, well, let me take a step back. This is difficult uh, data to gather. It requires, um, you know, cultural anthropologists, people who are trained in understanding culture and history and 
and decision-making. And it takes time to do these kinds of analyses. Uh, and so they are out there, but there are, they're not many. And oftentimes we're on a different timescale from the conservation perspective or the restoration perspective. There are huge global commitments and processes going on to restore, you know, for example, with the, with the bond challenge, 350 million hectares by, by 2030. That's a huge amount of land. And so people want to see things happen right away. But on the flip side, how is that going to happen? You have to work with the people on the ground. You have to understand the culture, the, 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 the human relations to be able to, to figure out how people are going to actually integrate trees and forests into the landscape. And so I think there needs to be much more of an understanding about the importance of this kind of analysis um, and how critical it is to the restoration conservation um, process and how, how it takes quite a long time to both gather that information and then be able to work with people um, to develop solutions that, that make sense to them. I, I don't think we're very patient um, in the approaches that we take. I think we want quick fixes and solutions um, because the, the issues are so dire um, and you know, they're so drastic and, and we're really facing um, a turning point. And so it's, it's, a, it's a complex um, scenario. It's something I think about all the time, but we're seeing um, really amazing things happen when you do take this approach, this more bottom-up approach. You do look at the social cultural aspects. Um, we're actually seeing incredible things happening on the ground that can be brought to scale, that can be accelerated yes. in the yes. landscape. Excellent. I guess um, it's striking when you were talking there about um, the pace at which uh, successful conservation and regeneration projects need to take place and the pace at which... Um, the governments can operate and, 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 and political decisions can be made and, 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 and the momentum that associated at the moment with dealing with some of these problems. Is that something you see? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I am quite inspired by, by the commitments and the momentum, but I do worry that uh, the, the strategies and, and the studies and the, the care and the time that's needed to develop meaningful and long-lasting solutions on the ground, uh, I, I, I think the momentum and, and that process of, of bottom-up are not going to meet. Uh, I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure to, to meet the targets without um, the ability to do so in a meaningful way. And, and that's where, you know, our work with LT, we, we try to build that capacity um, at the local level um, and at different scales. And it, it does work. It's, it's incredible to see how many people are, are doing really innovative, amazing things, but it takes time. And I, I'm very concerned that the time it takes, the resources it takes um, are not going to match up with the, the pressures of meeting these commitments in such a timely manner. So these are... Uh highly customized interventions, I suppose, in the sense that you're working with different people on the ground, different uh, stakeholders, different power dynamics, different, uh, different resources at, at, at stake, as it were. So uh, uh, can you talk a little bit about each, how you approach these, uh, bringing together different groups and the stakeholders, and I guess, the, you know, managing the governance of, of these change processes? Yes, absolutely. And, and it is, it is um, a very site specific. Each country is different. Each uh, region is different, each community. And so you have to, you have to understand those aspects. You have to take the time to, to, to understand how the governance structure works at multiple scales. 
that there are incredible organizations, you know, NGOs, research institutes, um, community organizations, associations who do this kind of work um, on the ground. And that's been LT's approach. We work with local partners who've been in some places where we work for decades. Um, they have these relationships. They have this understanding of the culture, the ecology, the history, the power dynamics. And I think in that way, if you have groups coming together to to who with this knowledge, with different forms of knowledge, um, and build uh, programs that can help build capacity to do restoration or conservation that fits within this local context, bring different resources together, different different um, you know financial resources, different sources of knowledge, and, and knowledge can be you know scientific, but also traditional you know local knowledge, um, different kinds of wisdom from land holders. Uh, you, you really need to bring all these different things together. And so there are patterns, you know, you do see, for example, in cattle ranching landscapes, there are trends that you see in multiple places. There are strategies to increase tree and forest cover in those landscapes to increase the connectivity between forest fragments. So the technical aspects um, are very well understood and documented. There are agroforestry systems, there are civil pastoral systems, which integrate, integrate trees and shrubs um, into cattle ranching practices. So those those um, techniques and strategies are out there. The science is there, uh, but you have to understand the history of, of the people you're working with. You have to understand how do they value and plant and protect and utilize trees and forests in their agricultural practices? Can you build upon that kind of experience? Who's making decisions? You know, who has the power um, and how can you, you know, what are the entry points to try to um, increase sustainability um, in the long term? And so those are the, the timely uh, processes that have to happen. Uh, but if we come together and draw upon the existing uh, knowledges that are out there, to the, the work that other organizations and individuals are doing, uh, amazing things can really start to happen and it can happen quite quickly. Uh, we have several examples of that um, within the cattle ranching context, for example, in Panama and Colombia that are, are quite inspirational. Right, right. That's very interesting. Maybe we can talk about those in a moment. Um, can you make any generalizations about how the, the approaches to conservation, to what extent uh, they generally do include these variables, uh, these groups, the, and, and take time? Because um, time is something we live in a, a global economy where things move very fast. People want decisions fast. People expect, you know, supply chains to operate at pace, at speed, and things like that. I mean, the traditional approach to these questions, to what extent have they integrated the, 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 the thinking and, and on the ground integrated these more uh, yeah, uh, bottom up and, and, and engaged kind of uh, processes? Yeah, that, so, you know, there are many groups out there, non-governmental organizations um, that are, are doing this. They are taking this approach and they do some really incredible work. There's the Rainforest Alliance. There are, you know, Conservation International, uh, the Nature Conservancy. Uh, USAID has a number of programs that they support that do take this bottom-up approach. Um, other organizations, uh, national governments are supporting different groups doing this kind of work. I think the problem that we're seeing is the the vast wealth and power of agribusiness, of the palm oil industries, um, you know, where there's so much uh, deforestation happening that is incentivized by national governments and corporations. We can't, you know, the bottom-up approaches cannot keep up with that kind of uh, massive 
pressure and process that's happening um, at a, a scale. I, I find that to be the most overwhelming component of it is how do you influence and try to um, change those land use decision making practices? Uh, I yes. think that's the biggest yes. challenge. And, and I guess there are you know, vast sums of money involved here. Um, and as you say, these are uh, tightly coupled systems in many ways, you know, with the government, large uh, agribusiness in some cases uh, and so forth, which um, are have tremendous power. What, have, are there any uh, approaches that, that to, to, to managing governance in situations where people have such, a, uh, I guess, concentrated power? I mean, power seems to be one of those things where it's, uh, it's kind of zero sum in the sense that, you know, for somebody to have it, somebody else has to give it up or, you know, it, it's not additive in a sense, if you, if you get what I'm saying. Um, I'm just wondering, how, how do you deal with a situation where you're just dealing with a, you know, a, a much much more powerful and also uh, I guess almost systemic uh, power structure yes uh, I think that's the million dollar question and I think unfortunately what we see with with national governments uh, especially in tropical countries you'll have conflicting policies and policies that relate to land use so on the one hand You'll have national governments with ministries of agriculture that promote mining and agricultural expansion into forested areas. It's incentivized. There are loans that enable you to do that. On the other hand, you have um, you know, policies that try to protect forests and try to incentivize um, forests and, and forest conservation. That'll be within the same government. And those ministries don't speak to each other or there's very little contact. Uh, and the agricultural or mining ministries will have far more power uh, than an environment ministry. Uh, it's very complicated. And I think this is at the heart of so much of what we have to start focusing on. How do you address those power dynamics, um, sort of crack them open? I do not have an answer to that. Yes, but- yes. And I'm wondering if you can talk then about the governance. Um, you know, uh, a lot of this, you know, it could be local, regional, national, but maybe at a supranational and a you know, in international level, are, are there any uh, significant governance um, mechanisms or do you think that the, the further development uh, along those lines would, would, would be impactful? So there, there are, um, there's something called the forest regime complex. So there's a professor here at the forestry school um, who, uh, Professor Ben Kishore, who talks about um, this complex of, of forest governance at the global level, but there's not a single, you know, forest governance system. Uh, and so there are, you know, multiple systems you have out there. Some of them are legally binding. Some of them are not. And I think that makes things quite complicated. I'm not a governance specialist, uh, but there is a list of, of different kinds of systems and regimes out there. Uh, perhaps if things were, were more cohesive, there, you know, there could be um, systems that would, would help to, to change these you know, often contradictory um, policies within a single government. Uh, I, this, I, I really don't have the expertise to know how that would happen. I'm, and I think, um, professor Kishore could, could really give you some interesting insight into this. Yes. Yes. That would be very interesting. Now you're, you, one of the things that you talked about is the, um, 
is uh, working with local communities, working with uh, different stakeholders and so forth. And um, I think you also mentioned the world scaling and and, uh, how scalable are these kind of uh, systems of, uh, I guess, governance uh, or, or systems? Yes. Uh, so scaling up or bringing things to scale is, is the big um, hot buzzword of the moment. And it's because people, you know, things can happen at a farm level or at a very local level, but they want to know how you can replicate that and bring it up to the landscape level. So areas where you're protecting an entire watershed, not just one farm or two farms within that, um, so that you can try to conserve ecosystem services at a landscape le- level. Um, and so... I will say something that many people get frustrated with, but it depends. It all depends on the context. And in some cases, um, for example, we're seeing in in Panama, there are new systems of of, uh, sustainable cattle ranching where um, landholders are integrating trees and forests into their their cattle ranching practices um, for a variety of different reasons. And we've been working with this group um, for about 10 years now, and they're traditional cattle ranchers. Uh, that are are you know had deforested this region at one point, and so now what we're finding is that other communities in the region and other landholders are seeing what they're doing and are are inspired by it, and so they're wanting to replicate those practices, and so they are now starting to establish similar systems. They're learning from these landholders, um, and we're starting to see these really innovative systems now coming to scale within this landscape, uh, and so the national government in, in Panama has, has seen this success. They're really quite intrigued by it, and they are wanting to use this as an example for how to um, promote and scale up restoration in, in cattle ranching landscapes throughout the country. So that's a very particular case study. We've been working with this group um, and, and these landholders for over 10 years now. Um, it's required a tremendous amount of, of, of effort, but... The, the outcomes, the results that you're seeing are, are exactly the kinds of things that people want to see. Uh, and so I think if you take that care and you do work at that lo- local level and understand what's important to people and, and build upon their existing knowledge, build upon, you know, where they see themselves in, you know, however many years, um, how trees and forests can help them to get there, then you, you start to see this sort of acceleration of, of innovation at, at, at varying scales. Absolutely. Fascinating. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the programs you run at LT and, uh, you know, how, how they operate and what some of the outcomes? Yes, absolutely. So we um, started as completely as a field based training program and our our donor is Arcadia. They're a charitable fund of Lisbeth Rousing and Peter Baldwin. And they are, I have to say, one of the most um I think insightful and and an extremely wise um, philanthropy group because they enabled us to to basically um, figure it out for ourselves and and explore what was available out there, what was on the ground, and and build it up. And I think their flexibility um, and their trust in the people that they give these kinds of funds to uh, really helps to develop solutions that are going to be long lasting. And so 
We started our, our field programs um, and we function in Panama, Colombia, Brazil, the Philippines, and Indonesia. And what we do is work within what we call training landscapes. And so we have local partners in those landscapes. Those can be research institutes, um, non-governmental organizations, also government ministries. Um, we work with farmer cooperatives, uh, all kinds of different organizations. And we work through those organizations to understand what kind of capacity development could help to accelerate um, conservation and restoration in human-dominated landscapes. And so we develop courses that are uh, from a day long to a week long on a variety of conservation and restoration strategies for different stakeholder groups in those landscapes. Sometimes it's for one, sometimes it's for many. Um, and we look at different kinds of approaches. So with cattle ranchers, we'll We'll do an entire course on the importance of ecosystem services in tropical forests and then the range of strategies that are available from very passive strategies, uh, which involve setting areas aside to regenerate naturally, to actually doing tree planting and integrating trees into their, their cattle pastures. And so depending on what the interests are and depending upon the ecology and the, the, the culture um, and those power dynamics that we talk about, we will teach people how to do these different strategies um, so that they can decide, is this something that will work for them? And we bring in knowledge from the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, but also from universities and research institutes, not only within the United States, but from around the globe. And very importantly, from our partner organizations in country, there's an incredible amount of uh, wealth of knowledge and, and wisdom from, from local organizations and from local landholders. Our courses are experiential, so people go into the field and they learn by doing. We have demonstration areas. We have we visit landholders and farmers who are doing innovative things. People can learn from each other. So peer-to-peer -peer learning, farmer-to-farmer -farmer learning is so important. And so we facilitate that. We also bring in experts from other countries. So we've had many experts come in from Brazil and Colombia, for example, to work in Panama. And they talk about their experiences. Then by the end of the course, a, a, a group of participants will work together. They'll develop a plan. Um, how do they want to apply and share the knowledge that they learned during the course? Um, and then once the course is over, we have something called a leadership program. So um, uh, alumni of our training program will, will request leadership support to help them apply and share the knowledge that they learn. And this is really, I think, my favorite part of the program because we get to, to uh, you know, listen to, to the people who are on the ground and people will say, look, you know, we, there are a group of, of cattle ranchers. We really want to start a cooperative and set up some model farms. And so we can give them financial support to do that. We'll mentor them in the process and we can give them technical support as well. Um, and we'll also facilitate our partners or their connection to other sources of knowledge and experience in the regions where they are. And that's the most important thing. I think if you give people access to knowledge, um, you enable them to see how things are done, you let them talk to people, build networks, um, you can see things starting to happen on the ground. And that's how you accelerate, that's how you scale up. And so LT does this um, in a variety of different contexts. Uh, so in, in Panama and Colombia, Colombia, we work primarily in cattle ranching landscapes. Um, and so we're working with landholders and uh, at different scales on integrating trees and forests into their, their agricultural and cattle ranching um, systems. In the context of the Philippines, we work entirely on native species reforestation. 
And so we work right now, we are working primarily with communities who are looking to do reforestation um, to address uh, disasters. So landslides and floods and, and all the, the, the adaptation components that reforestation can provide. And so we work uh, with communities and municipalities to set up restoration and reforestation systems that are going to help support people's um, resilience to climate change and support their agriculture and, and their livelihood practices. In the context of, of Indonesia, we work in East Kalimantan and we work with the mining companies um, who are doing coal mining and we work with them to do the rehabilitation of coal mine sites. Um, and so that's uh, uh, looking at lots of different approaches to restoration of highly degraded sites. Uh, and we also work within mangrove ecosystems, uh, working with communities and, and other stakeholder groups to try to um, conduct uh, mangrove restoration in a way that's technically feasible, but also um, supports community and local livelihoods. Wow. Wow. Now, I, I interviewed, I did an interview some time ago with Jagdish Rao, who, who, who's, uh, I think he runs the, uh, it's called the Foundation for Ecological Security in India. And something like, I don't know, a quarter of the land in India is, is so-called wasteland or land that doesn't uh, belong necessarily to anyone. Other, and it's, it's, it's just, um, it tends to be, I guess, uh, used by whoever's the most power in the local village and community. But it, they, they're about, uh, you know, bringing together, uh, I guess, indigenous people, communities and uh, other stakeholders to you know, regenerate the land and uh, so forth. And he, he, he was very... Uh, articulate and and very uh, persuasive about how long-term thinking that um some of these uh indigenous communities and local people who who when they're being offered you know some kind of cash crops as part of the uh mix in a particular area tend to not 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 uh, not be so motivated by the shorter or medium term financial side of things but just have a natural sense of of longer term uh stakeholding um which which I thought was very interesting Absolutely. And, and I think we don't give enough credit to the wisdom and the experience and, uh, and perspectives, the long-term perspectives of, of local communities and indigenous and traditional communities. Uh, that can be a very powerful climate change mitigation strategy is to strengthen community and traditional rights over natural resources. Um, and there are many studies coming out that support that. Yes, um, so yes. That's what we need to be focused. We need to focus on the, the human aspect. And I do want to say one thing. Uh, I think it's you know very easy to think about communities and the importance of integrating communities into to conservation and restoration. But we also have to realize that communities aren't homogenous entities. They're very complicated with, you know, components, their power dynamics and people who have power and control over others. So we, you know, again, this is the part I think that frustrates um, policymakers, but it is complicated. You have to drill down and really understand what's going on here and um, what is the context, the history, the culture, and, and then try to understand what kinds of interventions will actually work and make sense for each particular area. Yes. And how have you found working with agribusiness generally? So we don't work with agribusiness per se. We work with the mining companies, which is a little bit different They in Indonesia. They are mandated by law to do restoration. And so unfortunately, that can often mean putting trees in the ground and counting how many trees you, you planted, uh, whether or not those trees survive whether or not uh, they're appropriate for that landscape, that's not the concern. Um, so that, you know, I think the mining companies 
are, are becoming increasingly more interested in how do you do this well. And that's where LT steps in, um, working with the Ministry of Environment and Forestry and with a, an NGL called Tropenboss um, to try to make this happen. In the context of agribusiness, we, we haven't really hit that yet. We work mostly with landholders and people who are sort of on the ground trying to survive um, and are very interested in you know, trying out new systems. They see a civil pastoral system that where you have, you know, in the dry season. So the tropics are, you know, have these very um, distinct rainy and dry seasons. And in the dry season, oftentimes cattle will die because they don't have uh, food. But if you have a civil pastoral system where you have lots of trees that are fruiting at different times, they have different nuts and, you know, different shrubs that are full of protein, Landholders will start to see, okay, people with these new interesting systems actually have cows that are healthy and, and thriving during the, the dry season, whereas their cows actually die. Um, and so that has been our entry point is, is just really being able to show people how interesting these systems are on the ground. Well, that's very interesting because, um, and it's something that uh, I came across in a, an earlier interview a couple of months ago. We tend to think of uh, viral, um, uh, viral change or um, communications so much in the context of social media and technology, but um, there's an argument to be made that that in in uh, local communities and in farming communities, they 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 tra- the transfer of knowledge uh, can be very rapid. Yes, yes, the transfer of knowledge is rapid. You need to, again, understand how, how people communicate. And in our case, it was, um, and in many cases, they communicate um, by by seeing things on the ground, by talking to each other. They are not using social media in those cases. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In other cases, they use radio. You know, radio is a very powerful instrument, I think, in especially in many African countries, and music. You know, so you can have songs and traditional songs that are developed. Our partner in, in Colombia called CPOG, they work on this quite a bit where they have music that is about sustainable cattle ranching that is actually sending messages throughout these rural communities and people are listening to it and actually assimilating that knowledge and then going in and experimenting. Um, so it depends. It depends on, on what the culture is and how they how they work. Yes, I guess it was the idea that it, their their welfare is at stake. You know, their 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 livelihoods at stake. So they 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 will be alert to uh, you know what they can be doing better. That actually you know that sometimes they have an idea that uh, you know that it's 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 is very primitive. That the farming hasn't changed and that it's you know quite static. But actually, it 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 can change quite quickly as well. It it really can change quite quickly. Um, I have seen it change and our partners on the ground see it change. And actually the farmers now who are making the change are our primary partners. So they are now teaching in the courses that we have. Um, And so it's quite astounding to see um, what people will do. Farmers and landholders and people who are are surviving out there on the land – um, and drawing upon natural resources are extremely innovative. You know, they will try new things. They will test it out. They will talk to each other and see what works. So we learn as much from them as as they do from us. So we can bring to them, <clears throat> excuse me, we can bring to them different strategies for integrating trees and forest in the landscape. But then for us, watching them take and assimilate that knowledge 
and integrate it into their traditional systems is for me the most fascinating part of it all. Um, so we have farmers who have all these different kinds of model farms where they've done different things. You know, some of them are doing natural regeneration. Some of them are taking trees and integrating them into their crops in really different ways that we hadn't really thought about. That's the, that's the interesting and powerful aspects. People are quite amazing. They want to survive. Um, and they're, they're, they want to adapt and, and they, they're innovative. It seems that the field-based work is, is at the heart of what you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about other approaches to capacity development? Yes. Uh, so the field-based component, again, was, was LT's uh, sort of bread and butter. We, we started that way and have uh, uh, built these, these programs where we have courses that run throughout the, years that are, uh, throughout the calendar year in our training landscapes. But in 2013, our principal investigator at the time, Professor Mark Ashton, had a very innovative idea, which has really taken off. And he wanted to try to figure out how could we reach more people out there? Um, you know, the, the field courses are site specific. It takes time to get there. People have to take time out of their, their very busy lives. Uh, what could we do differently? So we launched an online training program, uh, that is based out of the school of forestry and environmental studies. And we have been able to, to, to reach, over a thousand people since starting in 2013 um, from about 70 different countries around the world. And these online courses um, build upon all of our experiences in the field. We have this incredible platform that we use where that people can access. Uh, we have uh, different case studies, different PowerPoint presentations. Um, they're, they're highly interactive. People can see each other and talk to each other. So we actually had one course. Um, they're six weeks long. And so we had one course where we had Portuguese-speaking participants from Brazil working on restoration with Portuguese-speaking people from Mozambique. And they were connecting and interacting and talking about their experiences and sharing knowledge um, on an online platform. It was really uh, powerful to see this. So I, we have a new uh, program. We have, um, first of all, we have six-week-long courses that happen throughout the year. We have them in five different languages. Um, they're not MOOCs, which are these massive online courses. They're highly um, interactive. They're tailored to the needs of the participants. Participants will actually develop a project during a course that is implementable at the end. Uh, and so they get a lot of very um, specific, tailored uh, guidance and and um, mentorship throughout. But we also have a new one-year online training program, and that is a certificate in tropical forest landscapes. And it's run um, in partnership with the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and NLT. Uh, and it's four eight-week-long courses, a project course that that participants work on throughout, and then also a field component. Uh, so that's something. It's it's a it's a, a a course where people can actually, you know, work very um, comprehensively on developing their projects, and then they also interact and have this incredible network of Yale scholars, of all of our partners, um, but also each other. So we have a, a new cohort now of 44 people from 29 different countries, um, and they meet on a weekly basis, and um, it's a very dynamic, active program. So I think online pro online training. You miss many of the people that you can only get through field programs. So you're not going to have a, a traditional farmer um, really being involved in an online program. But you do reach an entirely different group of people who are struggling, who are dedicated to uh, doing conservation and restoration in the tropics. And those are the people that then are able to connect 
through through online components. They're from NGOs. They're from government, from academia, uh, and work together over the course of the year uh, to to develop a project. Great, great. That sounds very powerful um, use of technology. Um, What's next for you, uh, Eva, uh, at LT, but also, I guess, in, in your own work? So I think for LT, and, and it's interesting, we're thinking about, we're in our third phase right now. So we started in 2006, um, and we have a, a current support from Arcadia until 2022. And so we're thinking about, you know, what could LT look like? What could transpire afterwards, um, after we're, we're finished with our third phase? And, you know, we have over 6,500 alumni of our training programs, both the field and the online programs. And these are people who have an incredible amount of knowledge and they want to apply it and share it in different ways. And I think what we're, we're, we're really focusing on now is how do we reach these people? How do we support them to do just that, to apply and share the knowledge learned? We're thinking about potentially trying to establish a leadership institute where we can um, help people and support them to, to make um, impacts and have results on the ground. Uh, so that's something that's very exciting for us. We want to continue with the training aspects. We want to expand the online components. Uh, but I think really being able to reach out to the people who are contacting us all the time uh, for support and mentorship to try to do things on the ground, those are the people that we also really want to connect with. Um, so I see that as being um, in LT's future is, is trying to have these um, really sort of, you know, bring to scale uh, the, the, the transformational results that you can have on the ground. Well, I wish you the very best of success with it all. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm very grateful. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.